Chapter 14, Steel, Cork, and Transparent Paper. When wars break out and raw materials grow scarce, it is always the high-grade industries which suffer first and hardest. War has no place for the best. It is the triumph of the shoddy. Top-class materials are not merely strictly rationed. They disappear entirely from the market. And the man whose quality of workmanship and business goodwill depend to a large extent upon the standard of his materials must find adequate substitutes or shut down for the duration. This was the dilemma which now confronted me. My first problem was to find a substitute for the fine quality kid skins which could be decorated in silver and gold for evening wear. I experimented with many materials, but none was satisfactory. Then, one Sunday morning, I found the solution. My mother was extremely fond of chocolates, and this day I slipped across the road to the sweet shop and brought a box back to the house. As I unwrapped a chocolate for her, I was attracted by its transparent paper wrapping. I turned the paper over in my hands. Here might be the substitute I was seeking. Tentatively, I pulled at it and found it strong. Then I pushed at it and found it weak. My finger went straight through. I tried again with several sheets laid one on top of the other. Still, my finger went through. It would never take the strain of a foot. For a few moments, I paused, debating the possibilities of using glass, a dream which later came true with the invention of plastics. And then, absently worrying about my immediate problem, I twisted a piece of the transparent paper round my finger until it made a thin string and pulled. To my mounting excitement, it did not snap. I pulled again, harder. I pulled it with all my strength. It did not break. Next day, I went to the shop to buy not only chocolates for my mother, but sheets of transparent paper for myself. I twisted them into thin ropes and experimented. Yes, they would serve. They gave the support and strength needed to the top of the shoes, and although the color was a pearly glow and not a pure silver gleam like the silver kid, it looked attractive. Besides, it might be possible to buy the paper in sheets of silver and gold. I hunted around for the correct shades, but failed to find them. The silver was pearly and the gold was too yellow, too hard for the effect I needed. Then I looked again at the plain transparent paper. Of course, it was transparent. If it were possible to work colored thread inside, that might do the trick. There were, of course, stocks of silver and gold thread in the factory for the sewing and embroidery of shoes, and I soon discovered that my hope was well-founded. The thread gleamed through the paper with a translucent effect that was extraordinarily pretty. From that day onward, I started to make shoes of transparent paper, and I am making them still today. Now, however, the material is used in so many different ways. Some is woven, and some is plated, and some is dyed in sheets until it resembles the fine raffia it has largely displaced. Yet all are only extensions of that first application, and no matter how exotic the appearance Paris fashion houses ask for it repeatedly, it remains at its core simply transparent paper, as commonplace as the wrapping on that piece of chocolate. No sooner had I conquered this problem than a second and even more serious faced me. As part of my system of arch fitting, I had for many years incorporated into the shank of each shoe a strip of top-grade, light, tensile steel. It did not add weight to the shoe. My shoes have always been famous for their lightness. On the scales, two comparable shoes, mine and another's, weigh 130 grams and 250 grams, respectively. 
but it was necessary to take the weight of the wearer. Towards the end of 1936, high-grade steel was commandeered for the Ethiopian War, and the substitute steel they sent me was so poor that I quickly received an avalanche of complaints from my customers to say that their heels were wobbling. They did not know what was wrong, but I did. The steel in the shank had snapped. Instantly, I recalled the shoes and mended them. It was a long job which took the better part of two hours because the top layer of leather had to be stripped off, the broken piece of steel removed, and a new strip put in its place. Also, I could charge nothing. The fault was a fault of manufacturer, not of the wearer. When the repair shanks also broke, and then broke a third time, I could no longer avoid facing the full import of the problem. Without the proper steel, I could not make shoes to my special fitting, yet my reputation was founded on my fitting. It was impossible to abandon my principles, yet what else could I do? One Sunday morning, worried and anxious, I drove down to the Palazzo Ferroni Spini and sat down to experiment. First, I tried leather in various ways, extra thicknesses, different types of strengthenings. None were successful. Next, I tried stitching a piece of leather with wire inside. This idea, too, failed. The wire was not solid enough. Lunchtime was approaching. Reluctantly, I pushed the materials aside and half rose, preparing to leave for my meal. Then I paused in the movement and sat down again. A sudden thought had come to me. I asked myself, why not fill in the space between the heel and the ball of the foot? Excited, the line of such a heel clear in my mind, I sat and experimented with pieces of Sardinian cork, pushing and gluing and fixing and trimming until the entire space between the sole and the heel was blocked solid. At last, one pair was finished, the modern world's first pair of wedgies, or, as the Americans preferred to call them after Manuel Gurton invented the name, lifties. I sat back and looked at them. They were certainly unusual, not to say revolutionary, but I thought they looked good. I rose, slipping the shoes into my pocket as evidence of the reason why I was so late for my lunch, and went home. The next problem was to choose the right signora to wear them in public for the first time. I was confident that the wedgie would catch the public eye, and I believed them to be beautiful, but they were so far from the current fashion trend that I wanted to test the reaction of the wearers. The public does not always see eye to eye with designers in matter of fashion, and this heel, with its solid plumpness and its impression of great weight, might repel them. It certainly repelled the Duchessa Visconti di Madrone, the first customer to whom I showed my prototype wedgies. She came into the salon in Florence next day, as elegant and beautiful as always, with her eye on several of my designs. I have an entirely new type of heel for you to wear, I said. I want you to be the first lady in the world to wear it. I produced the wedgies. She said, shocked and horrified, Signor Ferragamo, you don't mean to tell me you designed that horrible thing. Yes, I said, I did. That is why I'm showing it to you. I think it is extremely nice. She shook her head emphatically. I wouldn't be seen with those shoes on anywhere in the world. She said, I said patiently, I have a pair of your shoes in my repair shop, which I am changing at my own expense because the steel in the shank piece is broken. This is the third time they have been returned, and they will come back a fourth time because the steel I am now getting is too poor a quality to carry the weight of the wearer. That is why I have invented this new heel. I won't ever put that thing on my foot, she said firmly. It's terrible. Just let me make a pair for you, I pleaded. 
My prototypes were the wrong size for her, and wear them once. If you are not complimented on them, bring them back, and we will forget all about it. Signor Ferragamo, I can't do it, she said. You make so many beautiful shoes that I couldn't wear a pair of such a horrid design. There was a good deal more opposition before I finally convinced her, largely, I think, because I promised her greater comfort than she had ever had, even in my own shoes. At any rate, she consented at last, and I made her a pair of sports shoes in brown suede and calfskin, and the Duchess bought a new tweed suit to match. She wore them for the first time to church one Sunday morning, the time chosen by all fashionable women in Italy to display their new clothes, and the effect was instantaneous. Every friend commented, What are you wearing? Are those Ferragamo shoes? But my dear, how charming, how delightful. When I opened my salon next day, they came to me in a continuous stream. Some raved at the wedgie's style and beauty. Some said they were dreadful and looked like orthopedic shoes. But I detected, even in the criticism, the saving clause, the grudging praise. Yes, I'll agree that they looked all right on the feet of the Duchess, but then she has such beautiful feet, I could never wear them. It was all I wanted to know, because the Duchess's feet, though good, were difficult to fit. Within weeks, the wedgie had become my most popular style. Every woman who wore it came to me to extol its comfort. The comfort was in the cork. Rubber would have given you a jerky, springy step. Cork made the feet feel as if you were riding a cushion. I patented the design in most of the countries of the world and took action against the first shoemaker who stole it. Three or four years later, I obtained judgment against him, but it was too late. By that time, every shoemaker in the world was making wedgies, and to have sustained my claims, I would have been forced to sue everyone. Their popularity had spread with such an extraordinary rapidity throughout the civilized world that within less than two years after its invention, 86% of all shoes made in the United States had wedge heels. If I had received a royalty of as little as one penny per pair, I would now be a millionaire many times over. In fact, I never received a cent. It did not matter. The wedgie provided me with an immense creative satisfaction. Though many of the wedge heels, which were later designed by myself and others, now look incredibly ugly, that first design, a sports shoe with a low wedge, is and always has been my favorite wedge heel. It is still the most popular of all the styles I manufacture. And the Duchess, who was its first wearer, she came to me next day to say, You were right, Signor Ferragamo. I have never enjoyed such comfort in my life, has never been without a pair in her wardrobe for casual walking. There was a casual sequel to this creation some 13 or 14 years later. At the time of its invention, the wedgie was hailed as completely new, as utterly different, as a revolution. But in 1950, workmen excavating the ruins of Boccaccio's villa near Florence unearthed some shoes worn by his women friends. They were wedgies, clumsy, heavy, and ugly wedgies, but wedgies nevertheless. My revolution was at least 600 years old. Perhaps in a previous existence upon this earth, I designed them and in my new life remembered them. However, enough of philosophizing. The wedgie did more than give me personal satisfaction. It saved my business when it might have suffered irreparable harm. A serious setback at this stage, when my bankruptcy was still unresolved, might have ruined me forever. Instead, with my business back on an even keel and expanding again despite the vicissitudes of war, I began to plan my next step forward. 